Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. Go to strengthguild.com, S-T-R-E-N-G-T-H-G-U-I-L-D.com. Scroll down to the Iron Radio Collections, and we've got new shirts and new banners for you to support the show. Everything from just a regular banner, regular shirt, to ones with sayings on them, like Lonnie's Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree shirt. And some news for you, we're going to have some contests for people who own these shirts and things. So if you support the show, we'll let you more on that later. So if you get in on these early, you can be one of the first people to win some prizes. So, thank you very much. Go check out the site, strengthguild.com. Scroll down to Iron Radio Collections and support the show. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist. I'm a sports nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. This is Phil Stevens, strength coach, owner of Strength Guild, Highland Games athlete, powerlifter. About to hike some of the Appalachian Trail, so I won't see you guys next weekend. Fun. Uh, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I created the Flex Diet Certification, Associate Professor of the Kerrig Institute, and I will be back home later tonight for the first time in almost seven weeks. Wow. Yeah. Okay. All right, everybody. We have David Barr with us as a guest today. Uh, maybe just a sentence or two about yourself. Hey, all. David Barr here, and my brother recently described me as the Elon Musk of fitness, which I think <laughs> sums me up pretty well. <laughs> Nice. All right. So you're affecting the Bitcoin market, are you, with your tweets? Mm, 100%. No doubt. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Everybody, we are going to cover a a little bit of – this is news that I saw and it's tangential, but I think general health stuff is also interesting. Uh, And then we'll talk a little bit uh, with David about what he's got going on. He was on the show in the past, but it's been a while, so we'll just get a refresher on that. And then uh, after the break, we'll talk about recovery, uh, something that David has studied for a long time, and just get some of his opinions. Let's start with um, something about vitamin D. This is like literally now. This just came out from the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition from Ma and colleagues. M-A. That's much it. Strength and Muscle Sport News. Habitual use of vitamin D supplements and the risk of COVID-19. They say previous studies have related vitamin D supplementation to a lower risk of acute respiratory tract infection. Uh, Emerging evidence suggests vitamin D insufficiency is related to a higher risk of coronavirus disease 2019. So they did uh, some association, and, you know, this has been our ongoing complaint, uh, Dave, lately. Like, everything's just a prospective, observational association type thing it's it it feels like everybody's just reviewing other papers or you know there's not a lot of original physiology type data collection at least not like it's been in the past but but these guys are looking at association between vitamin d supplements and covid the study included 8297 adults who have records in the uk biobank right specifically with covid19 results uh so they are they're they're visiting public data Uh, not just reviewing other papers, so I shouldn't be quite so judgmental. It says, after adjustment for covariance, habitual use of vitamin D supplements was significantly associated with a 34% lower risk of COVID-19. Interesting. So, in other words, the odds ratio was uh, 0.66. Now, this is where it's interesting. Circulating vitamin D levels at baseline were not associated with the risk of COVID-19 infection. So, supplementation helpful... Blood levels, not associated. So they say our findings suggest that habitual use of vitamin D supplements is related to a lower risk. And again, it's not causal, right? But is related to a lower risk of COVID-19 infection, although we cannot rule out the possibility that the inverse association is due to residual confounding uh, factors or selection bias. So they need further trials. Uh, And they did try to adjust, right? They co-varied for different things, but... 
Isn't that interesting, though? Obviously, there's something going on with vitamin D supplementers that puts them at lower risk. Maybe they're just more health conscious and washing their hands. I don't know. I'm sure they've covaried for quite a few things here. I'm not going to pull the whole paper. Um, but, right, that divergence is interesting, I think. Supplementation, helpful. Vitamin D levels in your blood, I don't know, apparently not related. So... <laughs> This is just a, a very funny coincidence because if I had read this paper and seen those conclusions, I would basically wonder what the hell is going on. Mm -hmm. And rather than trying to spend the, the weeks trying to research it, you're the guy I would contact about this. So I throw my hands up and go, oh, okay, what is going on? Yeah, I would have to read the whole paper. You know, um, this is one of the things where I get something across my desk and it's just going to require a deeper dive. I mean, what they're saying is true. I mean, I'm not disputing that. There's an association with supplementers, but it's not apparently not about their blood. <laughs> you know, the 25-hydroxy-D in their blood. I don't know. What do you think, Mike? I mean, uh, what, what other covariates could be at play here, not digging into the whole paper? Yeah, I mean, the first one I was thinking of is sleep, because depending upon when the study was done, that's one that generally is not looked at, because it can be a little bit more pain in the butt. You would have to have that data ahead of time, depending upon what database they're looking at. And even for doing new trials going ahead, there's different ways to monitor sleep remotely, but that gets a little bit messy. Are you looking at actual sleep or time in bed or whatever? But we know that sleep has a massive effect on the immune system, and it's not that far of a stretch to speculate that people who supplement with vitamin D may be getting you know, more sleep or a higher level of sleep that's impacting their immune system. Mm -hmm. That'd be my guess without looking at the paper. Yeah, and, and that's all we're doing. It's just for discussion, right? Yeah. We, I, I don't have time to do a super deep dive here, but um, it depends what's available in that UK biobank. You know, do they have like right. some kind of kinematic data on sleep? Is it a sleep questionnaire? Is it sleep at all? Um, yeah. My guess is probably not much on sleep, but again, I'm not familiar with that database either. Yeah, that's a good call. I mean, they might have done something like try to get a handle on how many times a day you wash your hands, some kind of like questionnaire data on something that would jump to mind immediately. But yeah, overlooking yeah. sleep seems to be. And it's so funny, right? I think that's one of the themes of this podcast over the years is it's one of the things we take for granted the most, and yet it's usually at the top of the list as far as mm -hmm. impact. And I don't know why people just devalue it so much. Or maybe they just don't have much of a choice. I mean, there's work stress and getting up early and everything else. I mean, obviously, there's some things you can do. Yeah, I think it's one of those things you can buffer for a period of time, which makes people kind of think they can get away with it. But that's always going to the, the bill's going to come due at some point. Yeah. Yep. I mean, fitness level, they might leave that. You know, these, these gen pop databanks, they might have some general um, exercise frequ frequency questionnaire or something like that, maybe. But you think fitness level would impact this in a, in a big way. Um, other supplements, right? They probably did control for that. I mean, if this is about vitamin D yeah. supplementation, maybe fish oils or, I don't know, um, other things. What are we missing, David? Can you think of anything? Well, I, I definitely love the the sleep angle, especially because we're talking about recovery shortly. But mm -hmm. uh, this reminds me of the correlation between uh, long-term personal health and oral hygiene. Mm. And it seems like, yes, there there are a lot of uh, internal you know, uh, biochemical mechanisms, physiological mechanisms, but it also seems that if you are conscious enough about your health to maintain oral hygiene, that is going to reflect uh, across a variety uh, of different ways that you're trying to uh, stay healthy and, and live a long life. Mm -hmm. And this may be the same thing. If somebody cares enough to supplement with vitamin D, then they're probably likely to have other healthy habits, mm -hmm. which could uh, mitigate their susceptibility to COVID. Okay. Uh, well, that's just as people, I think, are reemerging into gyms and all that kind of stuff. Um, honestly, with the amount of vaccinations that are going around, then maybe it's less of an issue. But 
last I heard, 38% of Americans had full vaccination. Mm. Um, I don't know. And I think Ohio here at least is similar to that number. Uh, we'll have to see where that whole thing goes. But um, Next up, gene therapy benefits can last for decades. Now, this has been on my pile of things to discuss on the show for ages. I just never – I keep bumping it back. I never got around to it. This is Carmen Leach from Lab Roots. This is both good and concerning. Um, so the first time I think I wrote about gene therapy was in the late 90s. Uh, about what bodybuilders are going to try to do with this. And, of course, WADA, right, obviously they do a, I believe it's annual meeting specifically about gene doping in athletes, and it's obviously a much more targeted approach in a lot of ways than, you know, uh, what we all grew up with, with, which almost a crude approach, like taking androgens to try to, you know, uh, oversize your muscles, and then you've got all these other side effects going on. But so what do they say here? It says, uh, there have been some instances in which scientists and clinicians have successfully treated a human patient with gene therapy. So listeners, if you're not familiar, yeah, there are clinical trials. Like, this is real. I've been hearing some things about sickle cell, right, because that's a monogenic thing, getting successfully treated. It says, researchers uh, have now followed up on a group of gene therapy recipients and found that the benefits of their treatment have lasted for decades Mm. Uh, it says the work uh, has been reported in Nature Communications. It's, what they looked at was a form of severe combined immunodeficiency, so SCID, uh, bubble boy disease. People might have heard of that or seen the movie. Uh, from I'm dating myself, I guess, but the old movie. Um, it says, uh, which is caused by mutations in a gene called IL2RG. This gene plays an essential role in the development of several important types of immune cells. You know, so, you know. Uh, T-cells, NK cells, just sweeping effects on your immune system, essentially. So a correct version of the IL2RG gene uh, is carried uh, in a non-pathogenic virus, right? So viruses do their thing. They insert their code into your uh, nuclei and that sort of thing. So again, this is not like mRNA vaccines. That's a, this is a different thing. Uh, I know there's a lot of concern because people don't quite understand how mRNA works, and that doesn't get into your nuclei and rewrite your genes, Uh, but this does. So it says the correct gene is carried uh, on a non-pathogenic virus uh, to the inside of these patients' blood stem cells. Chemotherapy is then used to remove some of their dysfunctional blood stem cells, right, because they've got a bad gene. So chemotherapy to remove it. Uh, and the modified cells are then returned to the patient in their place. Scientists have monitored five recipients of this treatment for three to 18 years afterward. The study showed that even though the transplanted stem cells were cleared uh, from the patients, the correct cells were still forming, and the patients had been cured, cured of their disease. So... Long-lasting gene therapy, uh, I think we might have touched on this in many weeks past, but there's even a guy on YouTube who's trying to use CRISPR to modify his own genes and, you know, these biohacker kind of things. Um, I don't know. It, a, a little scary. Uh, Mike, you were talking about how, geez, be careful. You know, you're going to try to rewrite your genes for muscle growth or myostatin or something in the oh, yeah. you know, mTOR pathway or whatever it is, and then you're like, oh, man. I'm now a quivering mass of muscle tissue or my heart doesn't work or, or whatever. But this is very interesting to me. Now, this is uh, white blood cells, but gene therapy benefits lasting for decades. Because that was one of my questions early on is how transient is it? You know, if you can transfect something into your uh, muscles, make them large or strong, uh, how often would you have to do that? I don't know. What do you think, uh, Dave? Any thoughts on, on gene therapy and athletes? Well, I, I was just going to say, medically speaking, I think that's fantastic that it can cure someone, just have those prolonged, robust effects. Uh, you are spot on about the fear factor there. It's It reminds me a bit of, of drugs and half-life, and I almost prefer the precision of shorter half-life drugs mm-hmm. and even something like caffeine. Uh, again, talking to uh, some experts here on caffeine, but if we just say, you know, eight hour half-life, uh, please correct me on that. But, you know, 
for me, that's still like, damn, that is just way too long because, you know, once it's in me, it's not going anywhere and it's very easy to disrupt sleep. So I prefer a shorter half-life and I, I just extrapolate that type of thinking, uh, that type of precision to gene therapy in terms of performance anyway. Yeah. It really hasn't transpired the way I thought it was. I mean, over the last two decades, I would have thought we'd see more of it, I guess. And as things get easier and cheaper, like CRISPR or some of the even things that are bumping CRISPR over, and there's new ways to do a lot of this kind of rewrite your code. But, yeah, to your point, Dave, it's not like you can, oh, well, you know, that shot of testosterone, I overdid it. It'll be gone in a couple of weeks. You know, this is this is much more, you know, um, it's not necessarily deal with the devil, but this is like a permanent, uh, it look, could be yeah, a pretty like permanent, permanent thing. so far. Yeah. Yeah. Um, have you heard anything, Mike, about gene doping? I mean, you hear rumors of other countries who are supposedly doing it, but no one really has any, any specifics and... My guess is that especially for hypertrophy, there's obviously, you know, a whole bunch of different molecular targets, but I think it's more complicated and has more redundant systems than what we realize, right? We're not trying to deal with like a a SNP, right? So single nucleotide polymorphism. It's, you could be looking at mTOR, you could be looking at, um, like what they're looking at with Duchenne's muscular muscular disease like dystrophin molecules you could be looking at all sorts of different things as potential targets and then trying to suss out what are the negative side effects of really pushing you know one so like uh we've seen the example from animals of the you know double myostatin null you know bull and dogs yeah yeah the downside with those from what i've heard at least in i think there's a couple of humans that have that is their muscles are not as strong as we would expect, and they have some other issues going on just in terms of, if we were to say, pure performance. And kind of like what you guys said with, you know, growth of cardiac muscle, right? If your cardiac tissue starts growing, it's going to grow in and reduce your chamber size, and that can lead to electrical problems. You know, there's already uh, genetic diseases where that can happen with hypertrophy of the uh, ventricles and yeah, it's super interesting. I'm sure countries are trying to do it, but I think it's much more complicated than what we expect. So it's probably going to take longer before we see some, quote, benefits from the performance side. But then that also makes me super nervous on, you know, what are some of the side effects that we probably just didn't really think about that much. And like Dave said, it's if this study is true, which it looks like it's super interesting for um, diseases, that's great. If you know exactly what target and you can go in and precisely change it, that's really good. And you want that effect to stay for a long time. But if you're doing something that's a lot more vague, like performance, oh, <laughs> All right. yeah. yeah, I just, I just have a, maybe a dystopian view of how that's going to go, especially in the early stages. Right. It, it makes me wonder, I mean, you could think smooth muscle, swelling your arteries shut. I mean, who right. knows? I mean, it just depends on what tissues, you know, take up the gene and how they try to control for that. I mean, I'm not a PharmD. Um, but, yeah. And, yeah, all these, like, multigenic kinds of polygenic things, it's not quite as simple. It's a good point what you're saying about muscle growth because if you try to, you know, brute force one system, half a dozen dozen others are going to reduce in compensation, you know, and it's, it's not like these single, single gene kinds of things. I don't know, Phil, have you, is is there ever any discussion about gene doping in strength circles and that kind of stuff? I mean, are people just happy with their (laughs) anabolics, you know? I don't think anybody can afford it. I think there's talks of it, but I mean, right now it's talks, you know, and, I think it's going on, probably. I mean, why wouldn't it be? Mm-hmm. <laughs> if it's if it's possible. I mean, you can't tell me that some of these countries aren't doing it. I mean, they'll do anything else. So, um, but yeah, there's not a lot of talk of it. I mean, let's be honest. The average powerlifter and stuff couldn't afford it anyways. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's uh Yeah, these biohackers on YouTube, I mean, 
I I haven't given them really the time of time of day. You know, that, who knows which what they're trying to do? And I'm sure uh, WADA, uh, the World Anti Doping yeah. Agency, of course, they probably look at you know what are target genes. You know, what are specific genes that somebody might go for? And it's a good point, Phil. Probably rather than individuals, it's going to be some uh, state. You know, national state ran thing. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you're not going to go to some dude's garage and like, <laughs> mess with your genes, <laughs> right? I mean, some some people would would, but uh, yeah, I mean, that's not in general. So, mm-hmm. uh, my son had a point that some of these guys are so crazy. I think uh, you see a lot of, um, I don't want to sound ageist, but sort of you know, millennial and Zoomer people. They're so desperate for attention on social media, even if something bad happens, they just want to say they're the first one to to do it. Mm-hmm. It's like, wow, I guess. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> All right. Um, before we go to break, David, let's just catch up with you as far as uh, the listenership. Uh, what have you been up to? Uh, I know you've got a book in the works, you know, that sort of thing. But maybe just tell everybody about what's been going on in your world. Oh, man, we could be here all day. Well, no, we, I won't do that to you. <laughs> But no, the, the biggest thing is 100% very excited about my new arm training book coming out, uh, published by Human Kinetics. It'll be out uh, at the end of June 2021, so it's coming up pretty quick. And even if you're not interested in arm training, it's it, it really offers so much more than just a single body part. It's not just a meathead book. My goal is to really advance the field of, of fitness and performance mm-hmm. by breaking down some of our, our fundamental concepts that we have, some of the, uh, we'll say, self-evident truths that uh, we hold dear to, okay. and really give them a thorough shaking and see if there's ways that we can uh, upgrade them, if we can advance the conversation, advance the field. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really more than an arm training book, but uh, yeah, of course, you want, you want jacked and swole arms, we'll get you there too. Okay, I get it. So philosophically, what's um, what drives you? I mean, your whole career has been like this, I feel like. You're always wanting to advance the field and make a contribution. Um, let's face it, we were just talking about, you know, biohacker gurus on YouTube and, you know, guys saying, look at my anabolics in my fridge and do do this. And, you know, these are not exactly the reductionist scientific approach. Um, but you – you keep pushing. I mean, you're still in the fitness realm. You haven't uh, tangented into, I don't know, um, Tony Robbins <laughs> in some way. <laughs> you know, you stay fitness. You're still about the exercise science. I just, I guess I'm curious what makes you tick. You know, what drives you, your curiosity and staying with the science and the evidence and that sort of thing. That's a very insightful question. And uh, I'm happy to say that I've only come to be able to answer that within the past year and a half. And it's almost silly, but uh, at age 43, I was formally diagnosed with Asperger's, uh, which is autism spectrum disorder. And uh, it's, of course, not something that just appeared, but uh, to to finally get that that formal diagnosis and and speak to somebody who understands it and... um, really explain to me why I am thinking the way I think uh, has just been tremendously helpful. After mm. 43 years, mm-hmm. uh, I, I can't even describe to you what that's like. But um, really simply, it's a, it, I'm almost too stupid to think any other way. Uh, so I, I don't understand a lot of uh, basic human uh, elements, emotions, whatever that is. But uh, my, my brain is definitely very geared towards uh, rational discourse and, and, uh, deconstructing and reconstructing, uh, definitely critical thinking is, uh, an essential element to that, which is, I find that there, there's, uh, there may be some confusion, not with everybody, but critical thinking doesn't just mean important thinking. Uh, I mean, it is, but what it refers to is taking your own perception or taking what you hear and critiquing it, subjecting it to critique rather than trying to adhere to your own uh, pre-existing, uh, likely comfortable uh, perceptions and opinions. So I, I wish I could give you a, a different, uh, more more helpful explanation, but mm-hmm. uh, I, I think that's the one I've got right now. 
Well, I, I definitely think, I mean, we've had science journalists on the show and obviously professors and professional athletes and all that sort of thing trying to bring that that scope, you know, without the hype. It's just really hard. Everything is so editorialized, you know. Um, there was a time where I, and I still distrust politicians, but I wouldn't really keep an eye on it, you know, and I feel like a lot of these things have changed. I, I forget it's the, like, Quality of Information Act or whatever that was dropped, and again, I'm not a social scientist, um, but, you know, you start getting everything editorialized instead of just reported in the news, and, you know, that's the kind of stuff that you see in in most podcasts, obviously we're going to get opinions out of the three of us and our guests, but yeah, there's something to be said for just sort of stating what's real, <laughs> what's true. Um, and not, I mean, if you bring your opinion to it, if you're going to speculate, just say, yeah, this is speculation, you know, and this is evidence-based. This is my opinion or my bias. Mike always says that, you know, my bias is that's such a fair way to start a, a statement. So what do you think just before we go to break then, uh, David, about, I mean, that's not how most fitness works in social media. You know, they're not doing um, literature reviews and looking for gaps in the literature. They're, they're people saying, look at my abs. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a struggle. Uh, and for your consideration, I would, I would submit that this is the only industry on the planet where someone can gain the perception of expertise, the perception of credibility by taking a pill and I'm not criticizing uh, drug use at all. That's not the point. The point is, holy crap, you can look at someone and immediately judge them to be an expert. And we've all done this. Uh, that's why I read Flex Magazine growing up. I mean, the, the biggest guys knew the most about getting big, right? Or so I thought. And that's just a fundamental, uh, you mentioned bias. That's a fundamental human bias that we have that in the age of social media, uh, it, it's right there in our face. It's visual. It, it's, it's so profoundly visual that uh, it's, it's very hard to overcome. And I, I don't see it happening anytime soon. I, I don't have a solution. I, I would ask you guys if you, you think there is one, but uh, I don't see that happening anytime soon. Yeah. My salty opinion is the dumbing down of America. I see it in a, <laughs> in a dozen different ways where we're just you know, dumbing things down, things are faster, uh, sound clips are briefer, um, people are asking for evidence less, it's it's less uh, attractive, you know, I, I'm, I've been listening to Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors, it's a Sagan book, um, and that's not going to surprise you, David, but the, the whole thing is about dominance hierarchies and who we look at and who we emulate and who we listen to, and the, the, the kind of the thesis of the book is we've got to get our head around this idea that if we do, if we are prone to primate dominance hierarchies, then we have to at least acknowledge that and try to rise above it, you know, in our politics or even, like I said, even in the fitness world and that kind of thing. But we've had this discussion before. Sometimes the huge guys are, in fact, brilliant as well, and we can't discount mm -hmm. that. Um, you know, there is that kind of thing. And you, you can't judge either way. You can't say they're huge and therefore they're a dumb meathead. Or you can't say, this guy is jacked and ripped, therefore he's knowledgeable. You've just got to be less um, discriminatory, I guess, and uh, as far as offering discrimination, I mean. And then you make a snap judgment, that's probably a bad idea in our field. you got to li li listen and see what they're actually saying or writing or doing, you know, and that kind of stuff. But... All right, let's go to break. When we come back, we're going to talk about recovery uh, from... Mr. Barr's perspective, uh, some of the definitions we'll start off with and just have an open, organic conversation. Hello, dear ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, I, yeah, I, you know who this is. Uh, so I'm here to tell you about uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson's uh, new book, uh, Why You Should Eat Keto. I don't do it because, I mean, look at me. Come on, I'm fabulous and I'm fantastic. Anyway, you should text uh, Keto ebook all in one word to 44222 to receive your free copy. Do it. Do it now. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming, and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. 
Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Okay, listeners, after more than a decade of joining us on the podcast airwaves, you can now also become viewers on YouTube. This is not our usual simple backup of the audio show, but rather a growing body of video taste tests covering various foods of interest to nutrition enthusiasts, bodybuilders, and powerlifters. From within YouTube, simply search for Iron Radio Taste Test or Nutrition Radio Taste Test. In about 15 minutes, we cover taste and texture similar to other products, uh, usefulness to the co-hosts, and whether we would recommend the product to certain clients. You may even want to watch our podcast feed or Facebook group for which products are coming down the pike so you can taste test them with us. Join us for this new monthly project. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, we're back. It's Mike and Phil and Lonnie, and we're with David Barr, who is an industry insider and author and scientist. And we're just going to pick his brain a little bit about the concept of recovery. I know it's something you've looked at for a long time, uh, David. And um, on Mike's suggestion, a good one, I think, let's start by just the definition of recovery. That is so important and so fundamental and yet so infrequently done that it has created a lot of problems in our industry. And I think that understanding and subsequently applying recovery uh, is, is the number two, the second biggest opportunity we have right now in our industry in terms of things that we can turn on a dime and implement right away. So I would submit that right now we're going in the wrong direction. And my goal is to, again, advance the field by helping people understand what they're doing and why. So with regard to recovery, the very simple answer is recovery is a return to baseline, a return to zero after some kind of induced deficit. Mm -hmm. And this is universal. This, it doesn't matter if it's fitness, it doesn't matter you know, if it's performance, this extends to everything. So we can look at data recovery. Let's say you drop your cell phone and you have, you, you can't access your data, you have zero data. You take it to a data recovery center. Now, what is the best case scenario for them to recover your data? Is it to get 100% of your data back or to get 150% of your data back? What the hell is 150% of your data? Like they're, they're going to put stuff on your phone. Like that's not cool, mm -hmm. right? Recovery is a return to zero and not going beyond. And we can look at this with medicine too. Say you break your arm. What is the best case scenario? You break your arm. Are, are you trying to get super bones? Are you, this is not the way to get an adamantium skeleton, right? The best case scenario is that your bone will heal back to the strength it was before the break. It's getting back to zero. And the reason this is so important for what we do in the, in the fitness performance industry is because we are not training to get to zero. We don't give all that time, all that effort to stay the same. We want to adapt. We are trying to get better, bigger, faster, stronger, get leaner, go longer, whatever our goals, we want to go beyond. So by focusing on recovery and not understanding that there's a difference when it comes to adaptation, 
we are often shooting ourselves in the foot and inappropriately applying so-called recovery interventions, which may in fact get us back to baseline quicker, but again, shoot ourselves in the foot, hurt our gains in meathead parlance. Mm -hmm. So that is the general overview. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I always think about just as someone who's just lifted for ages and then learned about powerlifting more and more over the years from Phil is um, oftentimes the bodybuilding definition of recovery is metabolic and muscular. And in powerlifters, there's much more of a neural component, I think. Um, is that fair, Phil? Like, what's your take on when you hear recovery? Do you think neural first? Do you think muscle first? Usually neurally. I can feel I can feel muscularly erect and still have some of the best days, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it's more rested and just neurally ready to go. Like, that's <clears throat> really what we're trying to do. Like, if I'm peaking some for, from somebody for a meet, is not only get them, you know, recovered, on the muscular level, but more importantly, on the just ready to perform, you know, just rested and the whole system is just ready to go and itching to get on the platform. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, Mike, uh, when I was mentioning the gene therapy thing, the first thing that like your example that you kind of defaulted to first was performance. I mean, how vague, I mean, define, right. defining this stuff is such a big deal, you know, define performance. Cause my default was funny was, hypertrophy um or even even dietary stuff like defining stuff is it's one of the problems i think that politicians have such a hard time you know they're they want to define things they can't even agree on oh man i'm not even going to touch some of these words but (laughs) they can't even agree on one thing you know um a Republican will look at something and say, that's a car. And a Democrat will say, what are you talking about? That's an apple. I mean, they're not even in the same universe, <laughs> you know. And so how can we ever come to some compromise? There's, there's, unless we want an apple-car hybrid. Um, but, you know, I run into that. I just read a paper about they were having to find red meat. Mike, you and I have talked about that. We walk around at posters oh. like, red meat? What do you mean by that? You know, or uh, I was looking at a paper about the Mediterranean diet. And that's actually harder to define than you might think. There's a lot of nuances there or a, a coffee, you know. So deciding on on what we're talking about, I think, is a big deal. Um, but what about your experiences with uh, recovery yourself, Mike? Like what's, you know, what's your, th- your, your initial gut reaction if somebody comes to you and says, man, I, I can't recover? Um, what's, yeah. What's your I mean- response? Yeah, Dave was the first guy I met who was like, well, what do you mean by recovery? And I'm like, just ability to do the same thing again sooner, you know, so just trying to get back to baseline. So if it's a client and they're saying, oh, my recovery is not very good, I'm not going to try to get them to define recovery because they probably have no idea what they're even talking about. Mm -hmm. So then I'm going to ask them, okay, so what is your, usually I'm going to look into performance first. Does this mean that you train three days a week and you want to train four or five days a week? You know, what, what is the thing that you're actually complaining about? And that may be they just have their program is just this haphazard, you know, poo soup of a bunch of stuff they threw together. So we may not have to do any, quote, recovery stuff. We just may have to give them a decent design program. And now they can do, you know, more work. You know, and after that, you could get into just nutritional components or sleep. You know, I use a lot of heart rate variability to look at stress to see what's going on there. Um, And those are the hardest questions to answer, too, right? Because you'll get, you know, kind of non-clients or people on the newsletter who have a a good question. They're like, "Uh, my recovery is not very good. What do I do? Like, oh, man, that could be (laughs) that could go like so many different directions and you have just a laundry list of questions to to follow up to see what's actually going on because mm-hmm. i think the word recovery at this point has been so bastardized that it's people understand what you mean and i think they kind of automatically go to uh, supplement sales and things of that nature mm-hmm. um, but it can be a quite involved messy conversation pretty fast yeah i mean this is where, you know, I'm usually, when people ask, and this came up recently with some students, when they ask, like, what books should I read? 
You know, and usually the default when yeah. you listen to podcasts or YouTube or whatever, you could think of some lay books, and some of them are damn good. But my default is usually, well, let's start with a basic like uh, exercise fizz, you know, one hundred and one kind of book, so you can lay down. Like for example, in this situation, what about a systems approach? You know, there's musculoskeletal, yeah. there's endocrine or immune or neural. And if it's neural recovery, is it more peripheral? Is it CNS? And how does – or are we talking about psychology and you're just feeling burnt psychologically? Guys, I, I got to say this is such a fantastic discussion. You guys brought up every point I wanted to address. And I think it uh, says a lot about why we've been friends for, what, like 15 years now, yeah. uh, which is kind of kind of scary. But, uh, yeah, y- y- everybody's spot on, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly. But um, yeah, let, so let's take the systems uh, approach. My my entire world is systems based. Uh, again, going going back to the Laspi thing, it's it's I almost don't know. I'm too stupid to think differently. So you you're spot on. Uh, nervous system, what what's often referred to as CNS recovery, it is typically distinct. And when we focus on nervous system recovery, we are really mostly focused on actual recovery, getting back to baseline. And why is that? Because there are often deficits induced by our natural lifestyle. And we can see this with, uh, as Mike mentioned, heart rate variability. Maybe we're super stressed out in terms of psychosocial stress. Um, maybe we're sleep deprived. No, no, not maybe. You know, we're, we are sleep deprived, right? <laughs> so how do we get how do we get back to normal in terms of sleep? to facilitate that normal recovery again, because it's at a deficit when it comes to skeletal muscle, that's where things tend to go off the rails. And that's where we tend to want to change our natural physiological processes. We want to interrupt them. And it's what I call worry words. We have words that we think we have a, a good understanding of, and we misapply them. And you don't see this in in Russian or other languages. It's a consequence of our me-centric language and society, which is not a criticism. I'm not I'm not trying to promote communism here. I am I'm I'm trying to illustrate uh, give you some background as to why this has happened. So we can think, for example, stress. Everybody knows what stress is. Stress is bad. We want to get rid of stress. So now I'm a meathead in the industry. I'm gonna give you ways to get rid of your muscle stress to improve recovery. Well, wait a minute. The entire point of working out is to induce stress so that the body will subsequently adapt. We don't want to hinder that. And often that happens through say inflammation. Oh, inflammation's bad. Everybody knows. Well, no, inflammation is necessary. We need it for adaptation. It's when it gets out of control and medical situation, it's chronic. That's when we want to blunt it. But again, that is medical. In a normal, healthy situation, when we are looking for adaptation recovery, we want to allow that inflammation to occur. Same thing, antioxidants, whatever it is. There are things that we want to maintain. We want to facilitate the body's natural processes rather than trying to blunt them. Yeah. Now, stick a pin in that we had talked in the past and it comes up every i don't know every year practically about yeah using antioxidants how much does the body's endogenous antioxidant enzyme systems cope with training you know glutathione peroxidase or sod or whatever and then um yeah but then you take too much antioxidants and oh maybe you blunt strength gains or you blunt some aspect uh, and I know, Mike, that's kind of your thing a lot is whether it's cold exposure yeah. or stressors, like toy with stressors, because the brilliance of the of the human body, I think, is it's a dynamic machine. It's not a car engine that just breaks, but it morphs, right? I mean, so um, you take that almost engineering approach, I think, right? Yeah, and then you can go one step further and look at, you know, anti-fragility, right? Because the body and Dave's talked about this too, is that you adapt to stress and you get back to baseline. But what you really want is you want to get a little bit better than your previous baseline, right? Which is something that is anti-fragile. 
you're actually getting systematically better over time by the intelligent application of stress. If you remove all that stress, like we send someone up into the space station, you know, just removing of gravity, you see, you know, massive bone loss and muscle loss if they don't do anything to counteract that. Uh, now I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, but what's, if you're going to, I don't want you to have to rank order these physiologic systems or, you know, the best, if you had a number one or two or three things that might help people with recovery, but can you just offer any kind of analysis in that direction as far as, you know, these systems, their importance, and then what people might do? to actually come back to baseline, you know, and then adapt beyond their previous baseline? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And I, I want to emphasize that that's my intent, right? Is to really help people, uh, really help people stop shooting themselves in the foot and then actually facilitate their gains, get bigger gains, right? I mean, come on, that's what we're all about mm -hmm. right? at the end of the day. So uh, Mike teed me up perfectly here and he mentioned muscle wasting and space flight. And this was uh, directly aligned with the research I did for NASA at the Johnson Space Center. And what we had found was that something as simple as touch of the skin, just the touch of the skin, was able to mitigate muscle wasting by as much as 80%. What? So the, the cutaneous, the sensory system is having a massive impact on other tissues, uh, in, in particular muscle, but there's a lot of neural feedback going on. There's a lot of feels you might say. So most recently, uh, credit to Dr. John Russin for coming up with this is a parasympathetic recovery period. And this is a game changer. Um, it, anybody can do this after a workout or anytime you want to relax, deep diaphragmatic breathing coupled with a specific posture. And that is lying on your back with your knees and your hips at 90 degrees. So basically putting your calves up on a bench, it's all this, not your feet, your calves, and then removing sensory stimulation from the very sensory dense areas of your body. So like the bottom of your foot, palms, of your hands and your face. So I take my glasses off and then deep diaphragmatic breathing and that sensory deload coupled with the parasympathetic activation of the uh, diaphragmatic breathing is, is just incredible. I do it after every workout and I do it before I go to sleep. Interesting. Uh, that, so that is number one because anybody can do it and it's simple. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Now, uh, Mike, haven't you done sensory deprivation tanks? Yeah. Um, so it's kind of that idea. Is that is that right, Dave? Like limit sensory input just to be able to be as parasympathetic as possible. You know, I, I've never made that connection. Hmm. That is exactly why I love these conversations. Because now, now I get to, to go down that rabbit hole. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if awesome. I had a access to a, a tank, even I had written down this in my notes once I'm back home is, Ideally, I would do it, yeah, like once a week, like on a Sunday or maybe a, after my harder training sessions or ideally before the beginning of the week. Normally, what I'll see is uh, heart rate variability changes will go up. You can get fancy and use stuff like Omega Wave to try to look at DC potential, which, you know, may be a marker for grossly brain function and stuff. But uh, you talk to a lot of other high-level coaches, they'll see similar things where it will tend to normalize like the next day. And similar to what Dave was saying, too, you're just trying to remove as much sensory information as possible, right? You're lying in a thousand pounds of Epsom salt, so you're floating. You're, the water temp is about the same temp as your skin. There's no sound. There's no light. And I'll actually use that, too, for trying to solve problems. So, like, when I came up with a system for the Flex Diet Cert, I would then go into a lock myself in a float chamber for 90 minutes get into a relaxed state and then try to disprove the system I came up with. And then I'll leave myself like 45 minutes afterwards from once I get out just to, you know, draw out some notes and that type of thing too. So 
because you're removing all of their inputs, right? So you're left with you know kind of whatever you're you're thinking about at that point, right? And I think what Dave's putting forward is some th- that kind of approach. I mean, obviously, not everybody can get in a sensory deprivation tank, right? But uh, some um, a portion of that uh, to get some uh, real real recovery, nervous system recovery, and, and gains and stuff like that. That's very cool. Um, not to keep mining here, Dave, but what about um, other uh, other uh, things that you might suggest? So I got one more for the nervous system, and then I, I think another one for muscle that uh, kind of all ties back to, to each of us. Uh, the nervous system, the reason I like to emphasize this is because it goes back to, to what we were talking about the beginning of the conversation, and that is sleep and sleep deprivation. And there is so much that we can do to facilitate our sleep. And I think the one of the fundamental problems with our not doing so is the lack of perceived control that people seem to have over their own sleep. And it's, it's really interesting to me. I had a, a, an athlete who mentioned to me that she could not maintain a consistent sleep cycle because Fridays were the night when her buddies went out drinking and it it took me a second to, to make the connection. But what she was saying was her buddies go out drinking ergo. She must Mm -hmm. too go Mm -hmm. out drinking. And it it was just so mind blowing that, uh, I, I almost didn't know how to respond. So the, the perception of control over our own sleep habits is, I, I think the most fundamental and I know it's not quite sexy because I, I mean, I've got, I've got a dozen different sleep tips. Cool. But if you're not maintaining a, a consistent sleep schedule, which for the most part, people have more control over than they uh, realize. So it's not to point a finger at anyone. It's to empower people to really reflect on how much control you have. So then you are more incentivized to maintain a consistent sleep cycle and use the tips that we can offer to do so. Yeah, Locus there's one more. Uh, I don't know if you guys have comments on that, but um, I, I can jump right into the muscle. And this is something I mentioned in a uh, protein book from many years ago. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with this. Uh, protein Absolutely. resistance training, <laughs> pretty good book. But it is actually a, uh, a concept called protein pulse feeding. And I, I'm really proud to have presented this in uh, some earlier work, uh, a book I published in 2008. And the concept was actually validated by independent peer-reviewed research published several years later. Hmm. And the idea is to use rapid increases in blood amino acid levels through you know, consuming a whey protein drink. Mm-hmm. Simple, simple way to do it. The trick is you have to be fasted. And that rapid influx of amino acids triggers the muscle to induce protein synthesis. That's the the growth, recovery, adaptation effect that we're really after. And you know what? You can do it again. After a couple hours, do the same thing, and you're going to get the same spike in blood amino acid levels. It's very similar to spiking uh, insulin, which I, I appreciate is no longer... Uh, in in fashion, but the benefits are increasing that muscle protein synthesis, which is not just recovery based; it's adaptive. It facilitates adaptation. So it's simple. I think most people use whey protein anyway, and that's really the goal: is, is to find things that pe- everyone can use. So those are my top three right there. All right. So let me let me um, get some nuance on this just quickly then. Uh, so when I lift, um, and admittedly, I, my goal is not to take up as much space as possible as it once was, but um, I also don't want to beat my joints up and not get much return. <laughs> so I should not be sipping whey during my session at the gym. I should just lift and then slam it afterward. Is that fair? The part about sipping, uh, actually all of it, it really depends on when your previous meal was. Mm-hmm. So for this, the protein pulse feeding to work, you have to be 
in a protein fasted state. Mm -hmm. So if you've eaten within a few hours of the workout, the, the workout itself doesn't matter. That's not going to change your protein uh, synthetic response to the protein pulse feeding. Okay. I mean, I, I straight up, you know, uh, picked up my life, moved from Toronto to Texas to study uh, workout, post-workout window and, you know, protein. Mm -hmm. It's like, oops, that didn't work out. But the previous meal does matter. The timing of the previous meal does matter. So if you've eaten, sipping uh, whey protein, probably not going to make a difference. Mm -hmm. It's not harmful, mm -hmm. but the ideally you want to be in a protein fasted state before slamming your drink, irrespective of workout. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Phil, I know you're, um, we're just running out of time here, but you're a fan of eating before you lift. Um, mm -hmm. But I think. No, that, that's much more important to me. So. Mm -hmm. And that's just so you can feel um, sated and energized, essentially. Yeah, just have the energy to go. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that's always been more important to me than after. Because um, mm -hmm. I see all these people, I'm going to go into work, my workout starved and this and that. And they're all worried about this post-workout window. Yeah, you just had a shitty workout because you were starving. <laughs> <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I'd rather have the, uh, a killer workout and then. Yeah, just, you know, I'm going to eat over the next 24 to 48 hours before I do it again. Mm -hmm. You know, then, you know, I'm not going to fast for that long. So yeah. it's always been more important to me those those hours and the evening before, you know, allowing myself to have a good training session. Well, it seems like that next 24 hours and that's when what, what Dave is saying that would come into play. So what about the refractory period? How many times a day um, are we talking about like four times a day that you're just going to? go from essentially fasted to, you know, ramp up those amino acids aggressively. Uh, what would be your tip there? The most that I've tried this is three times, three consecutive meals like this. And my GI did not like it. There, there was significant uh, mm -hmm. distress from consuming consecutive liquid meals. Okay. So for me, the most I would ever do this is two consecutive meals. And then just start hitting the solid food. But I do this, uh, a simple way to do this, even if you're not going to do consecutive uh, uh, rapid whey drinks, ra rapidly absorbed whey drinks, just do it first thing in the morning. When you wake up, mm -hmm. have a whey protein drink, and it's going to give you that stimulation of protein synthesis. And again, it's irrespective of workout. This happens to every human, mm -hmm. whether or not they've lifted a day in their lives. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, all right. Let's recap here. So we've defined recovery. Um, it's nuanced, and I think people need to think about that. And I don't want people going to Phil and Mike and being like, uh, help me with my recovery. You got to bring more specific questions, people, mm -hmm. you know. Um, what do you mean? You know, what are your symptoms? Where do you feel depleted? Where do you feel like you're not back to baseline and ready to go? You know, that kind of stuff. Talked about some systems approach to all this kind of stuff. Um, specific evidence that Dave's sharing about, you know, surging amino acids and, um, or even like the relative amount of sensory deprivation to try to calm that fight or flight reflex right and get some parasympathetic kicking that's worthwhile stuff i think to take into this week and chew on um just quickly if people want to learn more about what you're doing uh david what what would they do right now uh check out my youtube channel which is simply named david Barr, and my website will be up shortly which i will announce through my youtube channel Oh, cool. And so you have, um, are you going to interview people? Are you going to do sort of uh, lectures or scientific reviews? Or how are you going to approach that? I am going to discuss all things applied when it comes to performance fitness. So yes, I will do interviews. And now that you mentioned it, all three of you are on the hook for that. <laughs> uh, will do. <laughs> all right, cool. Uh, all right, everybody. So that's going to be it. I know Phil's got to go lift. And we're going to call it there, and we'll see you next time. Sweet. Thanks, Dave. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks. This is great. Have a good one. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, 
Um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.